If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, would you join me in the book of Matthew, chapter number 9, Matthew, chapter 9. And I want to speak to you this morning on the need for laborers, the need for folks to labor in the work of the ministry. Matthew, chapter 9, and um, I'm not going to have you stand this morning. We're going to read the last four verses of this chapter, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the message this morning. You pray with us as we pray, and the Lord will bless the message and speak to all of our hearts. It's not my intention to just stand up here and speak words to you. I want God to do a work in all of our hearts and our lives. We're grateful for what he's been doing this week. But there's more that needs to be done. Would you agree with me when I say that? There's more that needs to be done. God's not finished. And obviously, as long as we're here, as long as we are given breath and we live in this world and Jesus hasn't come, there's more work to be done. And we need to be involved in it. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. Why? Because, the Bible says, they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but there's a problem. But the laborers are few. And there's an answer for that. We find that in verse 38, don't we? The answer is, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he'd send forth laborers into his harvest. Would you join me as we pray to the Lord this morning and ask him his blessing on this service? Father, we're extremely grateful to be able to stand up this morning and to be back home at Cleveland Baptist Church and stand behind this pulpit that was home for us for so long. We're grateful for how well the church is doing, Lord, since we've stepped out into a new realm of ministry. Lord, we're so grateful for the way that churches have been started here in the last couple of years across Northeast Ohio, and specifically, we think of Westlake, and we think of uh, over in, uh, Lord, uh, the other side of town where Lynnhurst area where Brother Bork and his family are laboring this morning. Now we think about the realm of Willoughby. and We ask, Father, that you would bless in a very powerful way as these churches get planted in the, in the ground and, Lord, really flourish, and many would come to know you as Lord and Savior. But beyond our own little region here, beyond our Jerusalem and our Judea, Lord, we understand there's the uttermost parts of the world. And Lord, as we stand here today and enjoy a wonderful church, Heard such wonderful music and great testimonies and the opportunity for us to lift up our voice and sing, praise and worship our God. We know there are many people in this world who have no clue who Jesus is. And there's a great need, Lord, for laborers. So, Lord, would you help us in the next few moments to focus our attention on this passage of Scripture? And would you speak to our hearts and would you do a work here today? Lord, I ask for your help in preaching this morning. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Uh, probably everybody, most everybody in this room this morning would have been in a church service or perhaps a small group Bible study where the leader of that particular moment would say something to this effect. Would you, we're going to take a few moments and we're going to take some prayer requests. We, we're, we're going to ask for you to, to share with us some burdens upon your heart. And so in a, in a situation like that, people would respond by sharing things like, they're burdened for a neighbor or a friend to come to know Christ as Savior. 
Uh, perhaps they would have a sick loved one, or maybe they have a wayward son or daughter, or maybe there's just a personal need in their own life. Maybe it's for finances or uh, employment. And so we'd all be familiar in a situation where people would ask for prayer requests. What a person prays for, think about this, is a good indication really about their heart, what they're burdened for, what is, what is important to them. And here in our text, we find our Lord and our Savior burdened, think about this, for the great need. This is not just the man who's standing here saying to his disciples, the harvest is plenteous, but the labors are few. This is God of very gods. Our Bible teaches us that Jesus is God in the form of man. He was born in the body of a baby, grew up in a little uh, region of Nazareth, and began his ministry, and for three and a half years declared himself to be the Son of God. Finally, of course, uh, cultivating that ministry by going to the cross of Calvary, where the Bible says that he died on a cross for the sins of humanity. He died for my sins and for your sins. And God shows his acceptance of that gift and that uh, payment on the cross by re- resurrecting Jesus from the dead. And so we find here our Savior is very burdened about the fact that not only would he die for sinners, but that after he was gone, that men and women would step up and say, I'm going to be involved in ministry and helping others to know this great story of salvation. If you're a Christian, one of the greatest things that you can do is bring someone else to Jesus Christ. And God wants to use our lives to make an impact in this world. There are people sitting here today, and you may be very timid, you may be very backward, you may be shy. Can I tell you, sometimes people don't know this of me, but I really am that way as well. I'm not always all that effervescent or outgoing, but God has helped me to step out of my comfort zone because of what he's called me to do. I'm just simply saying, when we have a burden for something, when we desire something, God helps us with it. And here, Jesus is burdened. Jesus was was at a time in in, in history when, think think about this, is at a time in history when there were so very few Bible believers The Bible says he came unto his own. When the Bible's speaking of his own, he's speaking of a group of people, a a race of people, the Hebrew people. Jesus was born a Jew. He came unto his own. And the Bible says his own received him not. Do you know why they rejected him? Because they had religion. There are a lot of people in this world that have religion. They are religious. They have all kinds of religious activity. They think, they think they're going to heaven because of what they do. They think they're going to heaven because they're a member of a church. They think they're going to heaven because they've taken communion. They think they're going to heaven because they've been baptized, whether by a pool of water or a little bit of water dipped on their head when they're a baby. They think they're going to heaven because they're, they're good people. The Bible is very clear. No one goes to heaven for those reasons. The Bible is, again, clear when it says we have all sinned, and sinners need a Savior, and salvation is not found in religion. Salvation is found in a relationship with the one who came to die for us on the cross of Calvary. And so Jesus came, and he begins his ministry. And he has a desire, of course, that that ministry, after his death and his burial and his resurrection, would go on and people would be involved. I want us to consider this passage this morning. Would you walk with me through it today? And let me just take these four verses and let's point out a few things as we think about this need for labors. Would you notice with me in verse number 35 that this was a time in which Jesus was busy. I I find in verse 35, the Bible says, and Jesus went about all the cities and the villages. I, I, I emphasize the word all because what I want you to understand is that Jesus didn't exclude any place. When Jesus was here, he was interested in every place that people lived. He was interested in people. 
And so, obviously, when we think about cities, we think about pockets of population. We think about multitudes of people being on top of each other. And so Jesus would go to the populated places. But what you also notice, the Bible says he went to the villages as well. The villages were the kind of the out-of-the-way places. They were the places where people would grow the crops, where they would take care of the cattle. And, and Jesus was concerned about those people as well. We often think about masses of humanity, and we think about the big mega cities that so desperately need the gospel. I shared in the earlier service that part of our ministry now is traveling across the United States of America and preaching in churches of all shapes and sizes, and the average church in America is not the size of Cleveland Baptist Church. The average church in America is about 75 to 100 people. And I'm so grateful for men who will go to a little out-of-the-way place, whether it's here in the United States of America or maybe in some place on the backside of the world, and say, God has called me there, and I'm going there to preach the gospel. And they give their life to help a people, though it's not a large amount of people, they give their life to help those people understand that Jesus loves them too. So Jesus went to the cities and the villages, and notice as he's going, the Bible says not only is he at these places, but he's busy in ministry. As he's going, the Bible says he heals every sickness and every disease among the people, and he preaches the gospel of the kingdom. So here's a Savior who's touching people, helping them where they live, uh, in the immediate needs of their life, but also sharing with them that, hey, it's not enough that you're just here and you're getting this touch. You need a relationship with my Father, and I'm the bridge between you and God. I'm the one that will go to the cross of Calvary, and I'll take God by one hand and man by the other, and I'll bring you together and reconcile you. Now, you may be sitting here this morning, and you may think, well, you know, I, I, I heard you a few moments ago when you say, you know, it's, relig- it's not religion that saves us. And there may be some people sitting here today, and you, all of your life, you've thought, well, you know, it's my goodness, my, my uprightness, my, my willingness to help other people, the fact that I've gone through these religious rituals, whether it's taking communion or, or being baptized or attending church or just trying to dot every spiritual I and cross every spiritual T. And so, therefore, I, I think I'm good. And now I'm telling you that you're not that you need a savior just like I needed a savior and I'm here to tell you there's only one his name is Jesus that Jesus loves you this morning and he wants you to be saved he wants to have a relationship an intimate personal relationship with you just as Jesus physically here in this world went to place to place Jesus is still working today and he's seeking out men and women in this world saying I want you to know I love you and I want you to know that I want to have a relationship with you I want to ask you this morning, I don't want you to answer me audibly, but would you answer yourself in your own heart this morning? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you? Answer that question. If you can't affirmatively say, I know, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I'm saved and that heaven's my home, I want to encourage you that as we end this service this morning, that as we extend what is known as an invitation, that You allow us the opportunity to introduce you to the person of Jesus Christ who can save you. I find that Jesus was busy in this moment of ministry, uh, ministering to people, but he's also concerned. Would you notice that? He's also concerned by what he's seeing. So we come to verse number 36, and we see kind of what motivates him to ask for these labors, for us to pray for labors. What is it? Well, verse 36 tells us, but when he saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion on them because they were fainted, they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Now I want you to think with me for just a moment. 
Because when the Bible makes the statement that Jesus saw, it means that he really saw. The problem with most of us is that when we see, we don't really see. We see, we see physically, we see people outwardly, we, we make assessments by what we see, but that's not how Jesus saw. The, the Bible says he saw the multitudes. You know, I, I mentioned to the early service this morning, you know, sometimes multitudes kind of aggravate us. Don't look at me like that, they aggravate you too. I'm, I remember many, several years when I was pastoring this church, and, and of course this was pre-COVID days, and a lot of people were working in the downtown region of Cleveland, and so they'd get on 71, they'd start out at, out, out at 70, out in Strongsville, and even as far beyond Strongsville, south of Strongsville, and they're coming in because they're living in the outskirts, and they're coming into town, and, and, and I remember many times, you know, those, those, especially in the early morning, you know, you see these headlights and taillights and just lines of people, and, and, and many times, because I lived a little bit closer, and I'm going to make a hospital call. Somebody's having surgery, so I'm going early to the hospital. I would jump on the highway and get down there to what was known as the Metro Curve. And I wasn't really happy because of all those cars that were going into downtown Cleveland and going the direction that I needed to go. And I thought to myself, you just need to get out of my way because I've got some place to go. I've got places to be, and you're a problem to me. And so we look at multitudes of people sometimes as being problematic. Now, I'm glad when the church house is full, but I've been to a lot of sporting events, and I'm thinking to myself, these are a bunch of moron people. Get out of my way. I need to get to my seat. You're, you're hindering me. You're clogging up the, the aisle way. I can't even my, find my way to the place that I need to be seated so I can watch this sporting event. Too many of you. And so the Bible says he saw the multitudes, but when he saw the multitudes, he, wasn't, he didn't see them as problematic. The Bible says that he saw them as people in need. When the Bible says that Jesus saw, he literally saw them. I mentioned that we see people superficially. We see them from an outward perspective. You know, we see, we look out. So as you walked in the door today, and I love the fact that every time I come to Cleveland Baptist Church, I feel like there's always new people here. And by the way, church family, be looking for new people. Go out of your way to welcome someone. Sometimes they say, well, I, I'm uncomfortable doing that. Do you know how uncomfortable they are? Then make them feel comfortable. Reach out to them. Say, man, we are so glad to see you. My name is, and what's your name? Just a little bit of small talk. Make them feel comfortable. And so we look at people, and sometimes we say, well, that looks like a mean man. Or boy, that's a pretty woman. Or isn't that a sharp family? We think about the Womack standing up here, and we say, man, look at that sharp family. And so we see things from an outward perspective. We see things superficially. But the Bible is very clear that when Jesus saw people, he just didn't see the superficial outward element of humanity. The Bible says here that when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved to compassion. The idea of being moved means that literally physically, it wasn't just an, an emotional moment in which he sees somebody that maybe is, sees something that troubles him. The idea here is that Physically, physically, he felt in his body, he felt something as he saw humanity. So the people in the Middle East, you know, we read in the Bible this, this statement, bowels of compassion. This, without being too frank here this morning, this area of our body, this midsection of our body is a very sensitive area. If you eat the wrong thing, you can have some real turmoil there, can't you? So the, the idea here is that you feel things very 
sensitively. Here you feel things deeply in this midsection. And the, eye, the thought that is given to us here in this text is this, that when Jesus saw the multitudes, here's what he saw. He didn't just see people. He saw them. He knew what was going on in their life, and it impacted him internally. So what did he see? Well, the text tells us he saw them as sheep that are without a shepherd, that are, they fainted and as were sheep without a shepherd. You say, well, preacher, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means, that a sheep without a shepherd isn't a sheep that's in danger. It's, it's, it's a, a, an animal that is heading for destruction. So we think about what God builds into uh, what we call animal husbandry, into animals in the animal kingdom. And, of course, animals are, come from all different shapes and sizes, and, and they have different abilities and and they do different things, and there's different food chains in the animal kingdom, and we think about all those things, and most animals have a, what we call a, a defense mechanism. In other words, if they're feeling threatened, they're going to they're gonna have a way of defending themselves. I mentioned in the early service this morning that when I was a kid growing up here in the church, and from junior high, from about seventh grade all the way until I graduated from high school, I worked a bus route in the inner city. Our bus route went from West 25th Street all the way to West 65th Street from from about Clark Avenue all the way down to Detroit. And so it was a fairly large piece of ground that we covered. Brother Jerry Nolan was my bus driver, and I was the bus runner. You say, what does that mean? It means that I got off the bus and ran to get the kids. Well, if you know anything about the inner city, specifically back in those days in which I was a kid back in the 70s, i got to tell you, the inner city was a place where there was lots of dogs. And I don't know that they had any kind of leash ordinances back in those days. Because most of the dogs in the inner city, when I was a kid as a bus runner, were running loose. When Jerry said, hey, Kevin, get off the bus and run to that door, I'm thinking to myself, I don't think I want to. (laughs) I've seen the dog in that yard. I don't know where he's hiding, but I'm not real thrilled about the fact that he may be coming after me here in just a moment. So what do dogs do? They have, they have, a, they have a, uh, a mouth that has teeth in it. They snarl, they bite, they get, they can, they get cornered, they, they, they feel threatened. They're going to come after you. I live here in the city, in the city of Brooklyn, and I'm, I'm amazed. I'm really amazed in this city in which we live. I, I feel like that, you know, in some respects, they ought to let folks hunt in the city of Brooklyn. And here's what I mean. I'm telling you that we have about... 10 to 15 deer, here, a herd of deer that run through our backyard almost every day. They're running up and down the, the little lot behind our backyard. And, and, and I'm telling you that, you know, they just, I, I feel like they think, I'm free. So we have, we have deer, we have, the, you know, I've seen possum, I've seen raccoon. We had a family raccoon that lived under our deck a couple of years ago. And I, and I just have to tell you all, you know, deer perhaps are a little bit more mild, but I'm telling you those raccoons, I've caught a couple of them. <laughs> You get them in a cage, and you get, I'm telling you, they're going to hiss at you, and they're going to, they're going to if they could, they, they'd chew through that steel and come right after you. So God gives them this defense mechanism. But sheep don't have that. Sheep are docile. Sheep are made to be watched over and taken care of. And so when Jesus says, hey, I see these people as sheep without a shepherd, what he's saying is these are people that are heading for destruction. The, the wicked one is coming after them. And so he didn't see them as problematic. He saw them as folks who needed some answers in their life. Would you think with me about that, that he saw them and he saw their need? Then when, that comes us to verses 37, 38, and that really is really kind of where this kind of cultivates in these few verses when Jesus now is pressing what he's feeling upon his followers. 
Would you notice that in verse number 37? So he's saying, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. Verse 37 says, then. The little word then is not inconsequential. Would you think with me about that? Then what? Then saith he unto his disciples. You know, oftentimes when we feel pressure about things, we feel like we need to do something about it. So Jesus now is doing something about what he's feeling. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but there's a problem, the labors are few. Now, most of us, and I'm sure there are probably some people in this room, if I, we had the opportunity to have a conversation, you could tell me about your childhood. Maybe you didn't grow up here in the greater Cleveland area. Maybe you grew up in a more rural area. Maybe even some of you grew up on a farm or did some farming. I didn't do that. I, I, didn't ha- I don't have that kind of experience. My experience basically with, with uh, you know, is, rur- is urban living. We've always kind of lived right close to the city, and so uh, what we had in behind our house was a little garden. My, my dad would take a road, they didn't even have one. We had to borrow it. He turned up some, some grass there behind the, the house, and I remember as a kid, I was probably in about fourth, maybe third or fourth grade, and, I, and, and we planted this garden, and I was so excited about that. You know, man, this is awesome, until I had to start watering it and weeding it, and then I wasn't real excited about it, you know, but... What I'll, I'll tell you what I was excited about. I was excited about the harvest. When the harvest started coming in, when we started, we, we grew some corn. We had about, about two rows of corn, and we had some, some, some tomato plants back there, and we had some, uh, I think, some green peppers, and I think maybe some radishes. And I gotta tell you, you know, I took some pride in that. I'm, I'm raising this stuff, and now I'm gonna get to eat what I, what I worked hard to labor to. You know, there's something about farmers. There's just something about their values. They're working off the land that, that they see things maybe a little bit differently than you and I see it as urban dwellers. We go to the grocery store. If it's there, it's there. If it's not, we're upset that it's not. But, you know, it's, somebody has to grow that stuff, right? So Jesus is saying, I want you to see what I'm seeing. I'm seeing this, this, this parcel of ground. So today, modern far, farming is, is uh, you know, it's, it's pretty industrialized in some respects. When I was at Bible college, I, as I said, my experience with stuff was limited one of my best friends in Bible college, in fact, was the best man when Denise and I got married. His name was Dan. His last name was Gilland, and Dan's dad was a pastor in Salina, Kansas. And Dan started talking to me because he knew I was a city dweller. He said, Kevin, you can't believe the things that we, we see and the equipment that people have in this area of Salina, Kansas, where we grow all this wheat. And of course, it's not just a small parcel of ground. It's acres and acres and acres of ground. And so as a result of that, farmers don't, because they don't do things by hand today, they buy equipment that helps them to farm this massive piece of ground. So the thought is, is that I buy this equipment that will obviously help us to be, bring in, at a time of harvest, you know, to be, be able to bring in the harvest. So he talked to me about this equipment and these things. And of course, I had never experienced that. But I I thought to myself, man, that's something. But in the days of Jesus, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like it was equipment. It was was labor intensive. The fact is, is that in order for there to be a harvest, somebody had to go out and and they may have had maybe a a couple of uh, oxen that was pulling a plow. They turned the ground over. But man, when they planted the seed, they did that by hand. And you know what happens in a harvest that, okay, you plant seed and it's a whole ground, but sooner or later, you got, when that harvest comes in, it's a, it's a whole field that's ready to be harvested. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to see what I'm seeing. I'm seeing this vast piece of ground. The harvest is plenteous. When he says it's plenteous, he means it's vast. 
But the problem is, he says, I'm having a problem because the harvest, when it's ready to be brought in, there's a limited window, but I have a problem because, he says, there's a lack of laborers. In other words, the harvest is ready to be brought in, but where are the people that are going to bring it in? Where are the laborers? So then he gives us the answer to that. That's found in verse 38. He said, I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest that you would bring forth uh, laborers or send forth laborers into his harvest. That phrase, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, is an interesting phrase because it's what is known as the imperative motive, which simply says it's not just something that you should think about, something that you should, if you get around to it, it would be a good idea. No, no, he is emphatic when he says, here is a command. It's a command to me, Kevin Folger, it's a command to every person sitting here who knows Christ as his Savior. God is saying, you see what I see, you feel what I feel, you pray like I pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'd send forth labors in his harvest. So we need to understand that God has made it so that the gospel is preached by one person to another person. It's labor intensive, isn't it? We don't have a vast machinery that is like a big tractor that goes out and turns over the field. No, if that field is planted, whether it's in Willoughby or if it's in South Africa, or if it's in the church planning that's done through Baptist church planning ministries or through the gypsy ministry, Brother Lawrence Evans, Brother Nick Ivanovich, Brother Walter Stevens, through those ministries, it is all labor-intensive. One person telling somebody else about Jesus Christ. That's what is involved in the harvest. That's how we bring in the harvest. When we think about our world, there are over 7 billion people that live here. There's a greater propensity or greater amount of people today than there were even in Jesus' day. So when Jesus saw the multitudes, he's still seeing them today and saying to us, I want you to see what I see. I have some statistics I think will open your eyes a little bit. These statistics come from Worldview Ministries that is found in Danville, Indiana. Brother Ken Fielder, their whole ministry is just about getting Bibles into the languages of people that have none right now. And I think these, these statistics will help you see the vastness of the harvest. Would you bring up the first statistic this morning, please? There are 17,014 nations on this planet. When we say nations, these are, these are not necessarily countries, but these are people groups. In other words, people that are identified by a particular DNA that would mark them as a particular people group. And so those who do statistics say there are over 17,000 of these distinct people groups across the face of our, our, our earth. Would you bring up the next slide, please? Of the 17,014, 9,951 of them have been reached with the gospel. You say, what does that mean? It means that there's been sufficient church planning done there, and and these people groups have been reached with the gospel that if no other missionaries went to them, they could sustain their own church planting outreach endeavor because there's enough born-again Christians that would enable them to do that. In other words, they they can get Bibles, they have gospel tracts, they can do their own church planting among these 9,951 nations that have been reached. Bring up the next statistic, if you would. That means there are 7,063 nations that are unreached. You say, well, what does that mean? It means that less than 2% of the population is evangelical Christianity that would know how to win somebody to Jesus Christ. In other words, among those people groups, there are less than 98% of the population is completely lost, have no clue about Christianity, have no clue about how to get saved or how, even someone to tell them about Jesus. They don't have enough Bibles, enough gospel tracts. These are nations that we need to send missionaries to. These are nations where we need to continue to do church planning, where those of us who are in established nations need to leave our comfort zone and go to them and share them with Jesus Christ. All right, bring up the next statistic, please. That means there are, of, those, of that 7,000, now there are 4,757 nations that are unengaged. 
So some of those nations in that first group, that 9,951 nations, or 7,063 nations, some of those people are trying to reach them. And there's people there that are working. But there are 4,757 right now where nobody's even trying. In other words, it's, it's a blank canvas. There's nobody there that is telling people about Jesus. They need someone. They need someone because the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Will you bring up the next statistic, please? They tell us there are 7,117 living languages in this world. That's amazing when you stop to think about it. There are seven, over 7,000 languages that are spoken, different dialects, different uh, way that people express themselves. We've learned this week through Brother Joseph Peel that even in the deaf language, there are so many languages that deaf people speak in other parts of the world that are not the American Sign Language, but they have a language all of their own, and they, they, they don't understand. Somebody needs to teach them. So there are 7,171 living, 17 living languages, people that are speaking. Bring up the next statistic, please. Of the 7,117, only 698 have an entire Bible. Let me say that again. Only 698 of the 7,117 have an entire Bible. Let me ask you something. Do you take your Bible for granted this morning? I do. We've got it everywhere. I've got it on my phone. I've got several copies at home. Uh, I've got them in my car. I've, I've got Bibles everywhere. But there are nine, only 698 that have an entire Bible. As the English-speaking people, we're very blessed. Bring up the next statistic, if you would. There are 1,548 languages that have a New Testament. Next statistic, please. 1,138 have only a portion of the Bible in their language. The final statistic, please. There are 3,733 that have no Bible, no scripture, none whatsoever in their language. Do you think there's a need for laborers? Do you think there's a need for people to tell other people about Jesus Christ, for people to even learn languages so that they can begin the translation process of taking a Bible, God's word, and taking it over to the need of someone else? There's a great need in our world, folks. It's a need for laborers. I'm going to end today by sharing an illustration that I like to use because I think it's eye-opening. So let's just say, I don't, I don't know if, if uh, any of the ball teams are playing. You know, I know the, the football team isn't. I think our, our Cavs are out of it. So the only chance there would be, and I even hate to say the word guardians, <laughs> but I guess I, I don't know if the guardians are playing at home today, but let's just simply say they are. We're downtown. We're parking in a parking area, and there's masses of humanity moving around us, all right? So people are going by the hundreds and thousands, moving towards the ball stadium, and we're right in the middle of it. And how about if we just stop and we say something like this? Hey, can somebody here tell me who Jesus is? There'd probably be some people that snicker just like you snickered. But what if I was serious? What if, I, what if I was really serious and I said, hey, can somebody here tell me who this person Jesus is? Now, I think most of us would understand that Cleveland is not exactly a citadel of fundamentalism, is it? We wouldn't think of this as the Bible Belt. But there's enough people in the United States or in Cleveland, Ohio, that have been exposed to the gospel message, would know who the person of Jesus is, that somebody could say, Sir, I can tell you who he is. He's the son of God. Come over to my car. I've got a gospel tracker. I've got a, I've got a Bible here. Maybe they, I've got a track in my purse. Or here's a website you can visit. Or you can come to my church. There'd be enough people in that I probably wouldn't have to stand there very long before somebody could help me. Now let's go into the heart of what we call the 1040 window, the Asian portion that is the most restricted where people have for so long been deprived of 
anyone to come and tell them of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you the truth when I tell you this, that not long ago one of my friends said that someone in a village in one of these remote areas said to a man, can you tell me who Jesus is? And the man looked at him and said, well, I don't think he lives in this village. He may live in the next one. No clue that Jesus was a person of history, that he was the son of God who died on the cross for our sins. Now, statistically speaking, here's the statistic. If you could start speaking the day that you were born, and you could speak 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until you're 80 years old and you died, statistically right now in the heart of the 1041 of some of these restricted, closed access nations, you could cry all day long, every day, asking someone to tell you who Jesus is. Listen, listen to me very carefully. And nine times out of 10, you'd never bump up against somebody who even would have a clue of who Jesus is. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. Is there a need for laborers? You say, okay, preacher, what do we do? We're finished. Number one, you can pray. There's a command to, isn't there? If you haven't stopped by our table upstairs in the fellowship hall, please do that. We have these wristbands that's just a reminder to pray for the 1040 window. You can pray every day. God, would you raise up an army of laborers to march across the fields of this world and plant and reap the harvest that is ready to be brought in? Number two, you can give. We have a mission offering today. You can be involved in your church's giving program. So these missionaries that are here can go and do the work that God has called them, plus others that will contact your pastor this year and say, I need some help getting someplace. It's wonderful to be able to partner with missionaries who want to go and do a work to bring in the harvest. And finally, you can surrender. You can say, Lord, I don't know if you're calling me or not, but I just want you to know if you want me to, I'll go someplace and I'll help be a laborer in your harvest. By the way, you should be doing that here locally already. But God may want to move you from this area of the world and send you someplace that's out of your comfort zone. But he'll go with you and help you to be a laborer.